0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online
1: at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Mining coal is dangerous work. Breathing the dust can be deadly. It's
2: really a sad fact when we have
1: other countries around the
2: world that have virtually eliminated black lung, we now are seeing a reemergence
1: of this dreaded disease for the minors. Coming up, an investigation reveals cases of black lung nearly double in just a decade. And pedestrian safety can be a walk on the
3: wild side... We answer the question, why couldn't the senior citizen cross the road? It was a UC Davis 20 year old who originally set a lot of the signal timing for pedestrian signals way back in the 1960s, and we haven't changed much since then. Mapping the places where streets are unsafe for people and an attempt to dig deep into the earth comes up short.
1: We'll have these stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
0: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The deaths of 29 men last April in the Upper Big Branch coal mine explosion could have been prevented. That's the message from the first official report on the West Virginia disaster. Investigators found that the mine's owner, Massey Energy, operated the upper big branch in a profoundly reckless manner. The report also provides insight into another cause of needless deaths among coal miners, Black Lung. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports the old scourge of coal mining is back with a vengeance. Gary
0: Quarles is a West Virginia coal miner, as was his father, his grandfather, and his son, Gary Wayne Quarles. Gary Wayne was one of the 29 miners killed in the explosion in Massey Energy's Upper Big Branch Mine. Early this year, Quarles learned that even before the explosion, his son was likely already doomed to suffer because of his work in the mines.
4: Gary Wayne had been in the mines for 13 years, and from the autopsy
2: report, at 34 years old, he already had black lung.
0: Black lung, technically coal worker's pneumoconiosis, is caused by breathing coal dust— Since the early 70s, regulatory controls on dust greatly reduced the number of cases. But the lungs of the upper big branch mine victims show stark evidence that black lung is back.
2: Some 71 percent had some level of co-workers' pneumoconiosis.
0: That's Wheeling Jesuit University Vice President David McAteer, a mine safety expert who directed the independent investigation of the disaster. McAteer says the autopsies show a disturbing rate of the disease. Um, but it's really a sad fact
2: when we have other countries around the world that have virtually eliminated black lung. We now are seeing a reemergence of this dreaded disease for the minors.
0: McAteer's evidence supports what pulmonologists and occupational health experts have been tracking in recent years, a dismaying increase in black lung cases. For decades, West Virginia University professor and pulmonologist Dr. Edward Petzonk had studied the decline in black lung.
5: Well, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be a disease that you only read about in the history books and the textbooks
0: but then, in two thousand and three, Dr. Petsonk noticed an uptick in cases
5: Now since that time, the prevalence of black lung disease has just about doubled. There is a problem of both the prevalence of black lung, but also perhaps even more troubling is the most severe forms of black lung, which are both disabling and and lethal.
0: That aggressive form of the disease called progressive massive fibrosis is showing up in the x-rays that Dr. Robert Cohen sees in Chicago, where he is medical director of the nation's black lung clinics
2: huge conglomerate scars of coal dust and silica dust and scar tissue that are in the lungs. We shouldn't be seeing that advanced disease anymore. And we're seeing uh, a number of cases of this and clusters of this disease. So that is, that is very, very real.
0: Researchers have identified hot spots of new cases, including the central Appalachian coal mines, and they have a few theories on what's happening. Lax enforcement and monitoring of dust may be contributing. David McAteer suspects changes in mining practices may also be to blame, as higher coal prices and diminishing reserves push miners into more marginal seams of coal. We're
2: in narrower seams where the mining
0: process allows
2: us to cut the rock, and it's cheaper, in fact, to cut the rock and load it and take it outside the mine and separate it uh, on the surface
0: Uh, is cheaper than trying to cut carefully and cut only the coal seam itself. That's a problem, explains Dr. Cohen, because when the powerful mining machinery cuts the rock layers above and beneath the coal, it produces silica dust.
2: And that dust is more toxic than coal dust, which is toxic in itself, so that uh, they may be exposed to a sort of a combination of dust that are more toxic than in the past.
0: Cohen says mining has also gone through major labor changes, with fewer union operations, longer hours for miners, and fewer chances to switch positions in a mine. Gary Quarles says his son had tried for years to get his bosses at the non-union Massey-owned mine to let him change his job.
2: He'd been wanting off of that job because of the dust. He said, you know, it's, it's bothering me. And they would never take him off of it. And usually, if you do a good job for a company, they don't want you off of that job, you know.
0: Quarles says his son worked seven years at a position known as the dustiest place in a mine. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health looked into coal dust and found the current standard for the amount of respirable dust was not sufficient. NIOSH recommended cutting the allowable limit in half. That was in 1995. In 2009, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, proposed regulations based on that recommendation. But the mining industry is resisting. In testimony on the proposed rules, the industry cited higher costs and questioned whether medical evidence supports a need for the new standard. Dr. Edward Petsonk says the cost issue may be real, but so is the medical need.
5: There is all of this scientific evidence, and uh, it's one of the most difficult uh, diseases to succumb to. It's, it's like having a a screw tightening slowly across your throat until you just gasp every minute of every day, and it really is entirely preventable by adequate control of dust.
0: The National Mining Association did not respond to an interview request for this story. The comment period on Imshaw's new dust rule was recently extended through the end of May. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
6: He's lived a hard life And hard he'll die Black lungs done got him, his time is nigh.
1: Most days I commute to work by bus. It's quick and easy. Stop requested. But the hard part comes in the evening when I head home. Trapello Road. Thank you. I have to cross two lanes of traffic on a busy road. The nearest crosswalks and traffic lights are a quarter of a mile away, so I jaywalk, dodging cars, trucks, and buses. And yet, compared to other major cities in the United States, Metro Boston is judged the safest for pedestrians. That's according to the just-released study Dangerous by Design from the group Transportation for America. James Corliss is the director of the organization, and Mr. Corliss, hi. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. Well, as you heard, uh, I was getting off my bus and crossing the street and taking my life in my hands. Uh, sound familiar?
3: It does. Our report shows the last decade alone, 47,000 people have lost their lives simply crossing the street. And those are people killed. What about injuries? 688, injuries. 688,000 injuries. Over 10 years, the last decade.
1: Well, it's interesting because Boston and Cambridge, according to your report, is, is the safest major urban center in the country. Why is some
3: place like Boston
1: uh, safe and other places not?
3: Well, if you look at the top 10 list, you've got places like um, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Houston, Dallas. These are places that were really built the latter half of the 20th century. They were built with traffic in mind, wide, high-speed arterial streets. It was the model for how we built a lot of our, uh, our neighborhoods and subdivisions in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when it just was sort of imagined that we would no longer need to walk anywhere. And clearly, even from a public health perspective, we're having doctors tell us uh, we need to have more exercise, go out and, you know, walk half a mile and uh, or, or, or jog. And frankly, the irony is there's not a lot of safe places to go and do that.
1: Your report says that there are subgroups that are more prone to being involved in pedestrian accidents than others.
3: That's right. Seniors, they are much higher risk. They're out walking. They're actually, generally speaking, more in places with better weather. A lot of the retirees, many seniors actually don't have enough time to even cross some of these big, dangerous streets. Uh, there was a, an old story that it was a UC Davis 20-year-old who originally set a lot of the signal timing for pedestrian signals way back in the 1960s, and we haven't changed much since then. So what do we do about that? I noticed from reading your
1: report, you mentioned road diets. What's a road diet?
3: A road diet is looking at the entire street from curb to curb and thinking about trying to accommodate all users. So perhaps rather than six lanes of traffic, you go to four. You have a turn lane to accommodate turning movements you put in bike lanes, wider sidewalks. It's a lot about the width of streets. It's a lot about the visual cues that we provide drivers that slows that speed of traffic down, which is really critical because if you're hit at 30 miles an hour or above, you have a very slim chance of survival. I know one of the
1: cities that ranks very high over the last many years in your reports is St. Petersburg in the Tampa Bay area.
3: Right. Uh, A lot of Florida cities. In fact, four of the 10 most dangerous uh, regions are all in Florida.
1: In St. Petersburg, they used a system, a new system called the Enhancer. I I want you to hear it because this uses sound and lights to get people's attention.
6: Hi there. To cross the road, push the red button. Hola. Para
7: cruzar la calle, por favor, aprete el botón rojo.
1: So I guess this LED flashes very fast and it notifies drivers. And, And as you heard, it's in Spanish.
3: Right. Which, as our report shows, um, if you're Hispanic, you're, the pedestrian fatality rates are much higher. In fact, Hispanic seniors have some of the highest fatality rates for pedestrians of, of any demographic group.
1: And why would that be?
3: A lot of racial, ethnic minorities, uh, folks on fixed incomes, low income, they're walking more, they have less access to vehicles, and they also live in neighborhoods with some of these really big, uh, wide, high-speed streets. Well, why don't you hear the second
1: message you get with this enhancer, because it seems to have really worked.
8: Hello, you've activated the crosswalk signal. Wait for the traffic to stop before you cross. To show traffic that you want to cross, place one foot near the curb line. And remember, thank the driver for stopping as you are crossing the roadway.
3: More of these kinds of cues for both pedestrians and drivers is a very good thing. Distracted driving, we believe, plays a role in some of these fatalities. But I think we also can't underestimate the value of just simply designing streets to be safer. What
1: proportion of federal money goes for traffic safety for pedestrians and bikers?
3: Very little actually goes for those purposes. Uh, For walking and bicycling and those kinds of safety activities, it's even though it's 12% of all traffic fatalities or pedestrians, uh, less than 2% of the money gets spent on making the, the roads safer for people walking. Congress is supposed to authorize
1: the federal transportation bill every, what, six years, right?
3: Every six years. We're 600 days late on the last authorization. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, the, the first and foremost, which is, um, you know, par for the course these days, is they don't have enough money. Actually, the federal gasoline tax, 18 cents a gallon, is not bringing enough money into the Federal Highway Trust Fund. Uh, raising the gas tax at a time of high gas prices is not popular.
1: So if you had to do one thing, make one change, what would it be?
3: We as Transportation for America would like Congress to adopt a complete streets policy, which basically says, look, every time you go in and fix a road, you tear it up, you repave it, put in some bike lanes, put in the sidewalks, do it right the first time so you don't have to come back later on and fix it at great expense. More people are walking and bicycling today, even though it still is uh, unsafe out there. And the younger generation really seems to be much more interested in a different lifestyle that includes sort of more walkable neighborhoods.
1: Well, James Corliss, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: James Corliss is director of Transportation for America. Just ahead, science sinks to new depths. A look back in time to Project Mohole. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. How many miles per lump of coal does your car get? Converting coal into a fuel you can use in your engine is an old technology, but it's being considered anew by some in Congress who see liquefying coal as a way to help free the nation from petroleum and ensure energy security. But opponents charge it's just a dirty way to speed up climate change. Living on Earth's Mitre Taj reports from Washington.
9: During the 70s, Jimmy Carter pitched a unique alternative to Middle Eastern oil.
1: Coal, which
4: is our most abundant energy source.
9: Coal is heard a lot these days on Capitol Hill. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, says the fossil fuel can save us from the dangers of relying on foreign countries for fuel.
5: I still vividly remember waiting in line for gas in the early 70s. It's something I never thought could ever happen in America.
9: Like President Carter, Manchin wants to use coal not just to generate electricity, but also as gasoline for car and jet engines. Carter spent billions to develop liquid coal during his administration, then politicians and the public lost interest when oil became cheap. Fast forward 40 years, the high price of oil is making it interesting again. But there are climate change concerns now as well. Liquid coal produces about twice as much carbon dioxide as conventional petroleum. But Manchin says with the Middle East on shaky ground, coal fuel is worth another try.
5: That is one of the many reasons why I'm co-sponsoring the American Alternative Fuels Act with my colleague John Barrasso from Wyoming. Among other things, the bill would break down barriers.
9: The barrier Joe Manchin would like to break down relates to the federal government. Current law restricts it from buying alternative fuels that emit more greenhouse gases than petroleum.
0: All it says is that federal agencies cannot make things any worse than they already are. It's status quo.
9: Brian Sue is a policy analyst with the Natural Resources Defense Council. He says repealing the law mansion targets would allow the fuel-hungry Department of Defense to enter into long-term contracts for liquid coal and oil shale. And the Republican-controlled House just passed defense legislation that would do just that. A little notice detail in the defense bill allows the military to buy any alternative fuel at once, regardless of how much it contributes to climate change. Sue says the Senate should fight to keep the current law the way it is.
0: It doesn't require greenhouse gas emissions to even decline. It just says if they are going to access the public coffers, then they should simply be able to at least meet the status quo, especially given all of the national security and environmental risks climate change.
9: The military is the biggest consumer of oil in the country and can use its purchasing power to encourage emerging markets for fuel alternatives. And the armed forces, particularly the Navy, do want to get off foreign oil.
3: By the year 2020, the Navy ashore and at sea and in all of our tactical programs uh, will be running on 50% alternative energy. And when we're talking ships, airplanes and so forth, that means basically alternative liquid fuels.
9: John Quinn, in charge of helping the Navy meet that goal, spoke at an energy conference earlier this year. It's unclear whether the military would even want to buy liquid coal, if allowed. The Department of Defense declined to comment. But Sue says liquid coal already gets a boost. Every gallon earns producers a 50-cent tax credit. If the industry really takes off, Sue says that could add up to huge tax breaks.
0: Right now it's not a lot because there are no commercial-scale to liquids facilities. But if you do the math... As soon as these coal-to-liquids facilities come online, you're looking at about 380 million dollars per year for every single facility. So this is kind of like, you know, uh, the holy grail of moral hazard.
9: But liquid coal enthusiasts see it as the holy grail of energy independence. Adam Victor is the president of Transgas Development Systems, a company that recently broke ground on a liquid coal plant in West Virginia.
2: In fact, we're hoping that once uh, this facility is built, you're going to see the explosion of this industry. And 44 of these plants will displace 100% of the United States' input uh, of gasoline.
9: Victor, a climate skeptic, says fuel from his plant would be traded on international markets, but would physically end up in gas stations in places like West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. He says he secured private financing for the project in part with the help of a company called UDA, the chemical engineering division of the German industrial conglomerate Tyson Krupp. During World War II, Tyson Krupp provided Nazi Germany with liquid coal. The coal-to-gasoline process got its start in Germany in the 1920s, and Victor says what's keeping it back in the U.S. now are incoming EPA greenhouse gas regulations.
2: And so I would say if there was one thing that could be done to have this technology explode throughout the country is to simply uh, waive the greenhouse gas emission uh, standards for these plants. And you know, if they want to do it uh, temporarily for five years, they did it for, for ethanol.
9: And lawmakers from coal states, many opposed to EPA's climate regulations, have more ideas for coal fuel. Earlier this month, West Virginia representatives from both parties proposed mandating a minimum amount of liquid coal to be blended into gasoline, much like ethanol is today. Democratic senators from Coleridge, Montana, have proposed extending defense fuel contracts to give alternatives like liquid coal more security. And an energy bill proposed by House Republicans would require the Defense Department to invest in a liquid coal plant that produces at least 10,000 barrels a day. Whether liquid coal gets a thumbs up depends on upcoming decisions in Congress and how seriously lawmakers take not just the threat of energy dependence, but also the threat of climate change. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington.
1: Fifty years ago, spring 1961, off the coast of Baja, Mexico, scientists reached new depths.
10: This is a story about a scientific and engineering adventure unique in the history of the ocean. This is the first deep ocean drilling.
1: It was called Project Mohol, named after the Mohorovicic discontinuity, the boundary between the Earth's crust and the mantle. The project was organized by the National Academy of Sciences.
10: Willard Bascom, director of the Mohol project for the Academy, is speaking.
5: We must go in water nearly 30 times deeper. Obviously, these are very difficult engineering problems.
1: They had to go through 12,000 feet of water and hope to drill miles into the ocean floor, but got only 600 feet. Still, it was a deep water record, accomplished by a team of academic scientists and oil industry specialists.
10: Dr. Jack McClellan, chief engineer of the Experimental Deep Drilling Project. Peter Johnson, naval architect. Edward Horton, drilling engineer, designer of special tools and equipment.
1: Ed Horton is still a petroleum engineer. Half a century after Project Moho broke new ground, he's still in the deep water drilling business. Ed Horton, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So how did you get involved in Project Moho?
4: Well, it was quite by uh, accident in a way. I knew one of the uh, principal persons that were involved in it, and Willard Bascom said, would you like to join my team on this new adventure? And I said, I would very much like to.
1: So take me back. Uh, Were you aboard the ship? Yes. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you were drilling? Was it boring? I guess, you know, it kind of...
4: Have you ever been on a ship that's drilling 12,000 feet of water? (laughs) No. First time? No. No. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> I'm glad you said no, because if you said you were bored, <laughs> then you, you better find a new job.
1: <laughs> so it was very exciting, then? Of course it was exciting. Do you remember that uh, John Steinbeck was aboard the ship as it was drilling, and he was writing about it for Life magazine?
4: I was well aware of that, and uh, I had a f- few chances to talk to him. He was a very impressive person to be associated with.
1: He wound up writing uh, about it. He's called the, uh, the ship that you were aboard um, that it had sleek race lines of an outhouse standing on a garbage scow. Not a very complimentary.
4: I thought that was very descriptive, though. <laughs> oh, really? And it sounds like something he would say. <laughs> and I am very impressed with the fact <laughs> that he called a spade a spade. <laughs> but it did the job, huh? It did a very good job. So, uh, Mr. Harton, how far did you get down in, in Project Mahal? I think it was about uh, 100 meters or something like that. I can't remember. But we did get cores, too. That was the main thing. It would be easy to go down in 12,000 feet of water and drill a hole. It's a little more difficult to go down and drill a hole That deep, which isn't very deep, but it was deeper than any other core had been taken at that depth by
1: a long shot. Well, you came up with one of the key new pieces of useful technology that made Project Moho possible, the guide shoe. Do I have that correct? How did you know that I invented
4: the guide shoe? (laughs) I I never told anybody about it, but it was a way of uh, keeping the drill string from breaking in the very deep water. It was pretty dumb and simple, so I was able to invent it. So what does the guide
1: shoe look like, and, and how does it work?
4: Well, if you took a trumpet and just took the bottom of it, and then you ran a piece of straw or something through it, the bending radius that would be restricted by the curvature of the uh, mouth of the trumpet. And then the ship would be the mouth of the trumpet. So as the ship rolled with the seas, the uh, drill pipe or the risers is used now
1: would be restricted in its bending. So back then you were a young petroleum engineer and... Um you invented the tension leg platform and the spar, which, uh, according to your company website, says together these two products alone represent the vast majority of all combined floating drilling and production systems operational in the world today. Now you're one of the most accomplished petroleum deep water engineers in the world, I guess, right? Well, I don't know about
4: that. <laughs> it's hard to say, as long as you say I'm one of many deep water engineers.
1: So how far
4: can we go down now? How high is the sky? There is no limit? Of course there's a limit. You'll come out the other side.
1: (laughs) You know, at the time, this was called what, Earth science's equivalent of the space shot. Is that what was going on in your mind? Did you think that? No.
4: (laughs) I I can tell the difference in a space shot and (laughs) and drilling a
1: hole. (laughs) So i got to ask you, Mr. Horton, every kid wants to go out in the backyard and, you know, dig a hole, but why did you get interested in drilling? Well,
4: <laughs> that's not a difficult question. I was interested in oil, and uh, I saw a movie called uh, Boomtown. It had Spencer Tracy in it, I think, and Clark Gable. Uh, the, the, the two of them were wildcatters And I think it was in Oklahoma hey,
10: look, I'm an oil man too, you know I haven't been drilling all my life for gophers Hey, wait a minute, little man I was pulling oil out of the ground When your ma was giving it to you for your health
4: And they both had good-looking girlfriends Which made it more exciting for them
8: Hi, i
10: How's my barrel of sweet Spanish crude, huh? <laughs> Where have
8: you been hiding, honey? I hear
10: they're running a the big wildcat out in California
8: Wildcats, wildcats Always looking for wildcats when are
10: you going to settle down, darling? What the heck, Evie? Travel and brag, brag and travel. Maybe I'll hit Oil Weather 8.
4: But he ran out of money and they begged, borrowed, and stole to drill a little further. And then all of a sudden in the derrick, I think it was wooden, and it started to rumble and shake. And then the black stuff came up all over and they were all covered with mud, both Clark Gable and the Spencer Tracy.
2: Hey! And
4: I thought, boy, that's a real way to live. <laughs> this is an adventure.
1: Did uh, Moho live up to that adventure?
4: Uh, in my mind, it did. And it wasn't as uh, muddy as it was in Boomtown. But it certainly gave me an incentive to stay with the oil industry. And it's had just as many adventures. Uh, very few of them in my career have been very muddy. but. When you watch one of these spars that I've been involved with tip up and you hope like heck that it's designed right, and when it comes back up again, it just uh, makes me shiver in a way. You know, you're looking at it and you say, golly, that's a hell of a sight, and I don't think that there are very many people besides me that have been able to uh, have that joy and a pleasure. Well, Mr. Horton, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, then a pleasure trying to answer
1: your questions (laughs) to the best of my ability. That's Ed Horton, president of Horton-Reason Deepwater. Fifty years ago, he was an engineer on Project Moho. For photos and John Steinbeck's article about the project, go to our website, LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Well, from digging a deep hole in the Earth's crust for science, we go to the shallow kind for planting seeds. And who better than Garden Girl to help with the spade work? Garden Girl is urban gardener Patty Moreno of Roxbury, Massachusetts. Recently, she showed Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom how to grow seedlings indoors. Now it's time for Bobby, the plants, and Patty to head outside.
8: I just want to see if there are any eggs under these ladies over here. No, no eggs. Bummer. They start producing eggs actually at 20 weeks that'll be like a few a week Then, as they mature, one a day. For the average person that wanted to have, you know, backyard chickens, how feasible is it? It's so easy. It's much easier than a dog. Like you never have to walk them (laughs) unless you want to. They are my garden helpers. They, you know, scratch and till the soil for me. They eat all the bugs and then they fertilize it. Let's go over to my smaller garden. We're going to get to work a little bit over here. Oh, you're going to put me to work? We're going to put you to work. This is basically a demonstration garden that I wanted to put together to show what you could do in like an average size backyard. Being Puerto Rican, one of the raised beds I plant every year is a Latin Caribbean mixture of beans and peppers and cilantro all of the things that you would need to make this thing called sofrito, which is like a base flavor for a lot of the food that you would eat in Latin Caribbean culture. I have a 4 by 4 raised bed that's two tiers high. And then I have a square foot grid that I made that fits right into the raised bed. And that's gonna be basically our guide um, as to where we're planting everything. We're gonna companion plant. In this whole bed, we're gonna be able to make an amazing uh, stir fry. So we're gonna have you know the eggplant, a Siamese dragon stir fry mix, which just has tons of different Asian greens in them. Arranging different configurations of raised beds is, like, my hobby. That's just fun for me. That's Saturday night, planning raised beds. It's a party.
2: Look, Asian greens are nice. It's nice. Spicy, it's different taste. How about some potatoes and some corn and some lettuce? My name is Robert Patton Spruill and I'm Patricia's husband. I want a record of potato. I want to do 800 pounds of potato and I'm trying to do 200 pounds of corn.
9: Wait a second, how big is this garden that you're growing oh, all this in?
2: Well, I'll show it to you. It's not that big. <laughs> it's only four by eight.
8: This part is for his man garden this year.
2: You know, a lot of people grow potatoes in trash barrels and that's the coolest thing ever because basically they put the potato at the very bottom of like six inches of soil and as it grows up they keep filling soil around it. And then at the end of the year they dump it out on a tarp pull all the potatoes out and they start over again and then that one trash can version people have done really gigantic amounts of potato in it
8: we every year manage to eat so many meals from the garden you know the supermarket people do not know me urbanites, it's our responsibility to start being as sustainable as we possibly can, because very near future, there's going to be 70 percent of the world's population is going to live in cities. Anything you grow and then eat is going to be the tastiest thing you've ever had. As long as you don't burn it, you're fine. And it's a lot of fun.
1: Garden girl Patty Moreno gives green tips on the Home and Garden website. She spoke with Living on Earth's Bobby Baskin. Coming up, a bird lover goes loony over what else? Loons. Stay tuned, it's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth
10: comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI.
1: Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Sandra Steingraber is an ecologist, an author, and a cancer survivor. In her new book, Raising Elijah Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis, Steingraber combines her professional interests with her personal life.
6: My son Elijah is named after a 19th century abolitionist from my home state of Illinois, Elijah Lovejoy who was assassinated by a pro-slavery mob in 1837. And yet his writings that condemned slavery went on to inspire the abolitionist movement. And so I, as an ecologist, feel as though every day I'm confronting the moral crisis of our age, the environmental crisis. So I wanted to name my son after someone who, every time I said my son's name, I'd be reminded that big changes are possible.
1: Sandra Steingraber recently stopped by our studios and talked about her new book with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwin. In
10: your book, Sandra Steingraber, you write that our environmental policies pretend that children who make up, what, 40% of the world's population don't exist. What do you mean by that?
6: Our environmental policies historically have not taken kids into account when we estimate and promulgate all these regulations on how much toxic exposure is acceptable. For example, until the 1990s, our idea about how much radiation exposure was acceptable was based on this hypothetical reference man who's a 150-pound middle-aged white guy. So the special vulnerabilities of children to radiation exposure very early on, just as their brains are getting developed and so forth, wasn't ever part of the calculation.
10: There was one reviewer who said that uh, your book brings to light that, quote, the environmental crisis is a parenting crisis. Why?
6: The environmental crisis is a crisis of family life because it takes away the ability of parents to keep their children safe from harm. For example, uh, we know that air pollution not only can cause asthma, but it also in early life can alter the development of the respiratory tract in ways that stunt the lung development of children so that those children go on to become individuals, who have smaller lung capacities and therefore are at higher risk for all kinds of respiratory disorders. And so, you know, the parents who are in the emergency room with the child with an asthma attack, who are standing in line at the pharmacy to get the prescription for the inhaler filled and so forth, we're the ones paying the price for an energy policy that does not protect children's health.
10: I have to say the story in your book that I found most startling was the one about pressure-treated wood, or chromated copper arsenate at your daughter's nursery school. Please tell me the story.
6: Well, when my daughter was three, we enrolled her in a nursery school, and out back was a wooden play structure shaped like a castle with turrets and drawbridges and things like that, and the children would run up and down and rub their hands up and down on it and make slush balls in the winter and so forth. And During that year, the EPA made a decision about arsenic as a preservative in pressure treated wood. It decided that the risk to children was too great to allow that use to continue. And so new wood was not allowed to contain arsenic. However, all the old equipment that was already out there all these backyard decks off of people's kitchens, all these picnic tables and play structures, there was no attempt to even help communities like ours figure out what to do. And so another biologist's mom and I tested the arsenic on the play structure, and the results that came back were really troubling. Arsenic was many times higher than the state of New York would allow for a cleanup at a Superfund site. Eventually, rancor kind of spread throughout the parent group as we realized the expense of fixing this fell on us, there wasn't going to be any help forthcoming. I think all of us felt very strongly, look, you know, we're all conscientious parents, but we're not HEPA filters. We can't put our bodies between those molecules of arsenic and the insides of our children. What's
10: toxic about arsenic, particularly for children?
6: Arsenic is a heavy metal, and it is both a carcinogen and a developmental neurotoxicant, which means that we know it has the ability to cause cancer on the one hand, specifically lung, skin, and bladder cancers. But a far more immediate risk is the ability of arsenic, like other heavy metals such as mercury and lead, to sabotage the developing architecture of the brain in such a way that cognitive abilities attention uh, learning and so forth are compromised
10: near the end of your book you bring up the story of finding a rabid bat in your house and i found it interesting how sh- how shocked you were that the county was concerned uh, with a preventive approach and was quick to reach for uh, the public wallet to cover the cost of uh, inoculating you against the prospect of getting rabies.
6: My children discovered a bat in their bedroom, and I heard dialed the after-hours rabies prevention hotline number. Within 15 minutes, I had a specialist standing next to me at 10 o'clock at night who captured the bat, took it into the Department of Public Health, and within 24 hours, I got a phone call letting me know that indeed the bat was rabid. Long story short, we all ended up with prophylactic rabies shots, and in the course of deciding whether we needed them or not, the prevention specialist at the County Public Health Department Let me know that in case my insurance would not agree to pay for the rabies shots, which were many thousands of dollars, that the county would pick up the price because they wanted nobody to make this decision about whether to go forward with rabies shots on the basis of money. He said, we want to err on the side of caution here. I had the precautionary principle incarnate here. We were going to protect my kids no matter the cost." Well, I had just come through the whole arsenic in the playground incident where I could get nobody in the government on any level to help me solve this problem. And so I realized that we are capable as a society of preventive action around an environmental threat to children. But our Ability to do that is really specific to threats that are visible, like a bat in your bedroom. And when it comes to toxic chemicals, which can be as deadly as rabies, we take a different approach. The arsenic in the playground equipment is a known carcinogen. There's no doubt that it causes human cancer. And so the difference between how we respond to a rabid bat and how we respond to arsenic-infused playground equipment is not one of evidence or proof. How
10: do you talk to your children about climate change?
6: Well, I don't talk to them a lot about climate change. I think it's one of the topics that is the job of adults to deal with. So there's this story about Elijah when he was four who asked to be a polar bear for Halloween. And I went to work sewing him a polar bear costume. And as I sewed it together, I began to realize that this costume may well outlast the species. And on Halloween, I was out there with my son, the polar bear, and what I saw were children who were bumblebees. They're also in trouble right now. Children who are penguins heading for extinction. So it's a whole village full of children dressed up as animals who are in trouble. And if that bothers us, then what is our responsibility at this moment in history as parents to do? I'm not interested in turning children into atmospheric junior rangers who think that they have to protect the stratosphere against ozone depletion or too much carbon dioxide. I want them to go outside and play and to develop a sense of natural wonder about this incredible world that we live in. And it's my job as their mom to be looking out for danger.
10: So in the end, you don't say much of anything to them about global climate change?
6: Well, it was my decision not to. But I ended up having to talk to my kids about climate change because my children asked me questions like, Mama, is it supposed to be so hot? My children gather together with other children and talk about how the earth is sick. You know, this is like children hearing about sex on the playground. You want to make sure you have your own narrative story before they hear it from their peers. So, in fact, there's another big talk that parents now need to have with their kids that is almost the opposite of the sex talk. And the reason I think it's the opposite, because the sex talk is all about creation The climate change talk is a story about what Bill McGibbon calls decreation, the unraveling of life, the extinction of species. And it's actually a much harder talk. I'm really good at the sex talk. I can give an age-appropriate sex talk to almost any kid you give me. The climate change talk is a harder one. And I think it's one that parents avoid because it's painful. And that's not where we want to be as parents, I think.
10: Throughout your book, you return to the idea that we cannot rely on our government to protect our children. You do note the exception around the rabies exposure. How do we protect them instead? and And what should we demand of our government?
6: We can't turn our houses into kind of latter-day bomb shelters and keep all the chemicals that are in the air and the water and the food from entering our children's bodies. The only solution has to be the forceful engagement of parents in the political system so that we demand a radical redesign of our energy, our agriculture, and our materials economy in a way that allow for the protection of children. In Raising Elijah, I'm really calling... On parents to be heroes. I'm not calling on them to simply recycle. I'm calling for something much bigger. And which is why I called the book Raising Elijah to remind us that there were other points in history where parents played these roles. Elijah Lovejoy himself, the namesake for this book, at the time he was assassinated, he was the father of a two-year-old. And part of his motivation was as a father, was the kind of empathy he felt for slaves whose children were being sold away from them made him believe that the argument that our economy could not be competitive without unpaid human labor, that there was a much bigger moral argument. And I'm trying to make that same argument about the big moral crisis of our time, which is the environmental crisis. The environmental crisis now has gotten to the point where our children are not safe and that we can't plan for their futures. And therefore, parents need to insert themselves into the political process to redesign the whole system to change it.
10: Sandra Steingraber is a biologist, mother, poet, and author of Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you, Steve.
1: That's Sandra Steingraber speaking with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwin. Mark Seth Lender has a thing for loons. He's followed, videotaped, and recorded the sounds of the aquatic birds up and down the east and west coasts. He's seen many a loon, but on a lake in British Columbia, Mark found a pair of common loons that were decidedly uncommon.
7: Loon crosses the lake. His flight call and the music of his wings linger like a trail of vapor, an invisible wake, and lands far at some distant place where, only for him, someone waits. Daybreak. Loon on her nest lays her head down low, her neck an arc of infinite grace, her beak thick, Weighty as a stone spear, points an accusing finger as I draw near, an admonition that warns and endears. Neither stillness nor the checkered black and white of her back, meant to mimic the speckling of sun on water, ruffled to silver by a breeze of air, conceals from those who would harm. No matter what her fate, here she will reside To guard the precious pair of mottled eggs Upon the weave of grasses she has made That is her truth, she will abide Day fades to black Morning Fog thickens the early light Loon, as dark as the penumbra of the moon, is uneasy The male, her clone to a feather, comes quickly now, and takes her place to reveal one remaining egg and one brown shape formless as carpet lint, till it opens its eyes. Afternoon, New Loon looks about, encountering the blurry world, aware, without worry, no doubts. That same day stumbles across the threshold, to him a small cliff, and swims, stable as a top. The male loon, his father, approaches. He is enormous, that dreadful garnet eye, fierce as a dragon, the powerful beak, yet offers so gently a tiny wriggling orange worm dredged from below, and firstborn takes his first meal in this world. The great loon moves away and dips his face, searching, dipping, searching, then one quick breath and tumbles soundlessly beneath. Again night, again day. Another loon is born. Firstborn does not like it. Dunk second-born who comes up sputtering and pushed aside, but parents provide equally between, equally watch and care. Allow them to hoist upon a parent's waiting back to ride that boat of feathers and flex their new wings. Cloud, the threat of rain. Loons on the risen surface of rough water coast and glide. Siblings, well-fed, satisfied, but keeping near as if in anticipation. And, like a thing foretold, the jaws of the great male loon part, and he turns, and leaning down to where his offspring wait, calls, loud, the call he's called these ten thousand years, imprinting upon their minds their true, their only name... Distant thunder, lightning. I pull away, hurrying to the safety of dock and fastened line. About the lake, smoke curls in the dying pines.
1: To take a gander at some of Mark Seth Linder's loon photos and to find out about his new book, Saltmarsh Diary, a collection of writings on wildlife, head to our website loe.org, And if you have comments about our show, flock over to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can tweet us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Volinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Corkins, Gabriela Romano, and Sammy Sousa. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirsch composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
10: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and PAX World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PAXWorld.com. PAX World for Tomorrow.